Welcome to the Drum Network Podcast, everybody. I'm Senior Reporter for Tech at The Drum, Chris Sutcliffe. And on this episode, we're going to be asking how are marketers balancing privacy and personalization? So we're told that people shopping and basically just existing online want two things, privacy and personalization. In recent history, we haven't all done a great job of marrying up those two values. Even leaving aside major scandals like Cambridge Analytica, most of us now don't trust big platforms and advertisers to use our data responsibly, while some make using it responsibly a big selling point. Meanwhile, personalization efforts continue to misfire, but can be done incredibly well. So we're going to be asking some absolute experts in this, what are brands and platforms doing to tackle this battery of problems, and what should they be doing better? And so I'd like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves. Russell, could we start with you, please? Sure. Hey, how's it going? This is Russell Nuzo, managing partner at Game Theory. Uh, I head up our efforts in new media measurement. Uh, we are a marketing and effectiveness consultancy uh, that's basically specializes in taking all of our clients' marketing media data, uh, connecting it through to their sales and other KPIs that they have, and understanding how that helps drive sales for them. Uh, and we also focus on foresight, basically being able to how to take that information and project it forward. Uh, say how your how, uh, brands are going to perform going forward. Delighted to have your expertise on this. And Mark? Great. Oh, there. My name is Mark Byrne. I'm head of paid search and social here at Brave Bison. So what my role is within the company, I work for the Brave Bison performance arm. And we are essentially a company that looks after the entire ecosystem of running online. Uh, so, for example, website platforming. We also look at media publishing and then finally converting through the performance arm. And my world is looking after paid search, paid social and paid shopping. And Anita? Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Klinkosh. I'm a digital strategist at Search Laboratory. So very broadly speaking, my, my responsibility is to translate uh, our clients' analytics data, insights and commercial information into effective digital strategies to sort of help them um, achieve their business goals. And uh, a quick intro to search laboratory to those of you who don't know us we are a team of data scientists and digital marketers working together to deliver global campaigns for brands across a variety of sectors both from b2b and uh, b2c industries perfect thank you so much and george Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is George Ganga. Um, I'm head of strategy and solutions at Impression, and we are a UK-based digital marketing agency. Um, in my role, I sit across the two halves of our team, so on the strategy side, working with our clients to understand um, what they're trying to achieve through their digital marketing efforts, and on the solution side, helping them make sure that they're leveraging data and technology in the most effective way to do that. Perfect. Well, I'm delighted that we've got all four of you on to have this discussion. I know that it's going to be incredibly wide ranging. So we're going to try and keep this as sort of uh, within scope as we possibly can, because privacy and personalization, obviously, we could talk about either sides of that coin for hours and hours and hours. But to begin with, one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of years is this perception among marketers that uh, so much of the conversation around privacy is predicated on public knowledge of this. So when Apple made their changes uh, in favor of user privacy, they said that that was because they were seeing demand from the public for some greater privacy options. So to what extent then do we think that uh, the public is well informed enough currently to understand A, what's going on with privacy, to make the judgment about the trade-off between privacy and personalization? That's an interesting one. And the fact that you brought up Apple too, that was immediately popped into my mind because I think um, there's two things happening here. So firstly, overall, um, frankly, consumers aren't aware of the overall ecosystem. So I think consumers, when they're opting out of cookie tracking, they're not particularly aware that this is opting out of a more personalized ad experience to get served more relevant and um, creative content, whatever it might be. I think part of the challenge here is that it's such a broad topic. Mm. 
within that topic of privacy, there's things like like that in itself. There's okay, do I want to have a more nuanced online experience? Which is fair enough. And then the, the other side of the coin is security. Do I want to protect my personally identifiable information or do I want to protect my bank details, for example? So I think when lots of times it gets muddied up in the same conversation, which makes things that bit more difficult. And I think part of it too isn't helped by just certain platforms. So Apple, for example, when iOS 14 came out with the the pop-up, the infamous pop-up on iOS 14, when it asked consumers, do you want to be tracked essentially? Mm. And of course, 95% of people, when they see that, say, no, don't want to be tracked without the context behind what that is. So it would have been far better, in my opinion. Do you want to see more relevant ads or do you want to see to the same blanket ad from whatever X finance company every day? So I think that's, that's the <laughs> yeah. challenge. It's just very, very muddy, I think, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's one of those things that now looking back with hindsight, we can sort of say, well, you know what, what would we have done differently? But at the time, I remember so much of the discussion was was all about kind of this inherent understanding that a lot of the public thought that they had around this. But Anita, I know you were nodding along to some of what Mark was saying there. To what extent do you agree that it's sort of a uh, the public perception doesn't necessarily line up with the reality? Yeah, um, I think that's quite a lot of time the conversations or what the sort of brands like Apple want to do, the language that we use can be quite overwhelming and, and quite technical. Um, so that could uh, sort of impact the, you know, the, the wider public knowledge on what is happening, what it actually means for me as a consumer. And um, I think you mentioned earlier that obviously um Consumers' knowledge and perception of data collection has largely been influenced, and rightly so, uh, by you know data leaks and some of the major scandals like um, Cambridge Analytica. Um, and obviously, the basis of the personalised um, advertising is the brand's understanding of who the consumer, you know, who the consumers are, um, what they in, um, what they're interested in, um, etc. But unfortunately, historically, uh, very little of that information have been collected um, or gathered with the consent um, from the consumers. Um, definitely, um, you know, um, advertising industry, advertising industry can do a little bit more to probably build awareness and communicate in a very clear language so consumers know mm. what it mm. actually means for them. Yeah, I mean, I think an interesting layer to all this is that really no marketer owns the full ecosystem between them and the consumer. There's <laughs> 10, 10 to 20 players that are touching information between them and all the way to the consumer. So the odds of data breaches or someone using it in an unintended way, you know, of course it goes up, the bigger the data volumes uh, and then more, more players that have their hands in the pie. And then when it comes to data breaches, just the fact that data can move so fast now, a breach is never three people, it's 30 million people. So, you know, in terms of things making headlines, it's always going to be something that makes a headline. Um, consumers know that there's a lot of hands in the pie, so it creates a lot of apprehension on their side. Uh, and then I think at the same time, you have some smaller players in this space where they, I would say, maybe peddle their advertising in areas of like human anxiety. Mm. Like when you go into, when you go into adver advertising around like, you know, body image or uh, healthcare issues like that, you can really pick up a lot of information and then your marketing can be very focused on driving some of those anxieties um, rather than really driving engagement or driving response. And I think people are very sensitive to that as well as we, as we move through this. So George, what do you think about, um, public sentiment around sort of data collection and, and how it's almost used and disseminated in terms of marketing. 
leaving aside whether they're informed or not, what do you think the sentiment is from the public around that kind of th- those practices? Well, so I think we we know that the public has growing concerns over the use of their data. So I think it was a KPM study of US adults carried out last year um, that showed that 86% of consumers feel a growing concern about data privacy. 78% expressed fears about the amount of their data that was being collected. But I thought something that was interesting was when asked about what caused those fears, two of the biggest concerns consumers had was the fear of their data being hacked and the fear of their data being sold to third parties. Yeah. Um, but sort of ironically, in a parallel survey of business leaders, only 17% said that their company sold data to other businesses. So clearly there's a disconnect between the data practices that consumers are most concerned about and the reality of how a large majority of businesses actually use their data. So mm-hmm. in answer to the question, I don't think the public is well informed enough to make that judgment. But I think if brands want to tackle that, then they need to come up with a way to be more transparent about what exactly they intend to do with their customers' data. Um, but achieving effective transparency is probably easier said than done. Yeah, that's a that's a huge issue. But before we move on to the next question about opt-ins, I wondered where do we think then that perception is coming from? Yeah, a lot of it is probably headlines because you're receiving that modern media is, you know, to use that term, clickbait. Headlines tend to get more clicks, get more traffic. So you'd see, of course, no one wants a data breach, but I, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I would imagine that would be not percentage of the entire data that's out there. Then. But a headline that says how much data is being protected by a certain company isn't going to get a click. So I think that's a lot of where it probably is coming from a bit of a clickbait fear mongering. And I would say it comes from it comes from the headlines and then it gets basically digested and turns into a very emotional thing from the consumer, which is, of course, very fear based, which is I don't want to become that. I don't want to become uh, the hacked bank account. Uh, which you know, those are those are reasonable fears that people have, even if the odds of that are extremely low. One of the things that we keep hearing at the drum is that uh, marketers and advertisers are often over being overcautious. Where do you think that caution has come from? Is it from those kind of thunderous repercussions for getting it wrong, or is it just from a sort of almost peer pressure from the rest of the industry? With the legislation that's changed, the likes of GDPR, I think brands have to be overcautious. I think there's too much to lose when. You don't want to be firstly, you don't want to be a headline, or mm. secondly, you don't want to be fined was a four percent of your your profits or whatever that, that fine is. So I think brands and as much as we all hate having to to adjust our cookie settings and every on every new website, I think I can understand why a brand has to be cautious because no one wants that as a brand. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, it would be good to ask ourselves, uh, you know, what is a good user experience having to consent to cookies to every single you know on every single website that we visit or every time we we delete uh delete our cookies um you know and whether we could look at something that is set up as a browser um a level obviously we've seen with uh you know um apple itp etc that ask, asks you for once uh do you want to be tracked or not majority of people are probably saying no i don't want to be tracked uh but does it come from, uh, you know, lack of transparency and lack of that awareness of the user, what it actually means and what um, was going to be uh, done with my data, et cetera? Yeah, I think that point on transparency is um, quite key because when we think about transparency specifically in relation to user privacy, the most commonly seen measure is these are these big user-facing disclaimers, which are basically those massive lists of terms and conditions that I'm sure we're all very used to seeing since the GDPR came in. 
But but really, the research tells us that those are ineffective, to say the least. We know that barely anyone reads them and even fewer people understand them. I think there was a Pew Research Center study that said 38% of US adults sometimes read privacy policies, but only 8% understand the contents of them. Um, so if anything, the research suggests that these um, disclaimers may have the opposite result mm. than intended. You know, They make people more confused. They see a massive list of different things that their data may or may not be used for that's basically been put there with the intent of making the company compliant and are more likely to withhold their data as a result. Um, one thing that I'd be interested to hear what some of the other panelists' experiences are um, with relation to sort of the, the wider industry is that one thing I've definitely seen too much of are instances where users are served privacy or cookie related opt-ins when they land on the website. But when you actually look at the analytics configuration of that site, the choices that the user selects has no impact on the way that the data is or isn't collected on that user. So obviously that's a very serious issue if that's happening, because it means depending on the way that you're collecting your user's data on site, that very possibly a whole web analytics setup could be non-compliant with GDPR. Um, so yes, I think there's a question around opt-ins, but I think as a bare minimum, I'd advise all brands are 100% certain that their opt-ins are actually having an effect. Russell, it seemed like you were smiling there. Yeah. Was that something you've seen uh, you've seen happen <laughs> as well? Absolutely, yeah, we've seen a little bit of that. I mean, I, I think you know, to, tying it back to you know, kind of what what puts uh, businesses in the, kind of their frame of mind. It's you have you know, government fines, you have consumer lawsuits. Uh, and then you have data breaches. I mean, those are huge things, even if they're all uh, extremely rare uh, as occurrences. But then tying it back to you know the way the way uh, websites are actually configured, are they you know are a lot of are a lot of businesses even in position to do things that are extremely relevant for consumers uh, right now? Like, are they actually doing the proper personalization and relevance things with the data? Everybody always says that they are. Um, but, you know, there's that balance there. But if we're really going to go down that path, let's do it the right way and make sure that it's highly impactful uh, and not, you know, not not put risk uh, out there without the, you know, the standpoint of doing something that actually really, you know, drives consumers in a, in a meaningful way and doesn't go into the world of anxieties and paranoia and trying to, you know, prey upon people's fears. Yeah. It's, it's almost like that Caesar's wife thing where the entire industry has to be sober for approach because otherwise it sort of filters down to those individual brands, those individual yeah, advertisers. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's like, you know, you, yeah, and it's a, you take Walmart, for instance, you know, am I, am I it's, it, you know, back to school time. Am I concerned that Walmart knows that I have kids? Probably not. Uh, but, you know, the other players that are in the ecosystem, uh, kind of flying under the radar, they can do different things with that information. Uh, so I'm not worried about the big polished players, but, you know, there's a lot of other uh, folks that are out there with their hands in the pie. That's what you have to be careful of. So we're obviously talking about this from a advertiser perspective, but we're all consumers by sort of nature. Yeah. We all exist on the internet as well. So we have personal experience of this. So Anita, do you think from a user perspective that we're doing this in a sort of a, uh, a sensible way, you know, as good a way as we possibly could be doing it and actually, you know, using opt-ins in a way that makes that value exchange clear? Uh, I think we've all been guilty of just accepting or rejecting cookies, uh, but I think we need to be looking at the reason for that. So we've said, I've said uh, before that um, you know some of those ter terms and conditions can may not necessarily be clear. 
uh, we reject as cookies uh, from the fear of you know data breach, etc. Um, so I guess as consumers, uh, we could potentially educate ourselves a little bit more uh, what that personalization means. So if I do offer you my data, what does it mean from um, from a consumer perspective? Mm. Is it a more personalized experience from an email perspective? Uh, better sort of product placements, um, etc. That's all what, what we want. We don't want to be targeted with um, you know irrelevant products and irrelevant um, ads. So I think there's some lesson to be you know homework to be uh, to be done by us consumers as well absolutely and it's it's so interesting as well that we see uh, you know my my inbox is overflowing with surveys and studies that purport to show that you know consumers will opt in if they know they're going to get an, a genuinely personalized experience and yet at the same time we see that opt-in rates are that they, they vary so wildly by geography by territory by demographic as well so obviously there is some disconnect there between what we're offering and what is actually being uh, i suppose on yeah. the, displayed on the page yeah and i think there's the there's the difference between uh, consumers and customers mm. so Consumers at large who really haven't had a relationship with your business yet, there's one level of kind of closeness that you can get to them without it being, um, you know, kind of sending off the radar signals. If you're an existing customer, then clearly you've kind of already, you know, gone over the precipice of having a relationship with that business. And there's a different understanding of the types of data that are there. And I kind of bring things back to, you know, what would a brick and mortar store do? So if you have a pharmacy on the corner, and you've, you're a person walking by and you've never been in the store, what do I have the right to know about you? Mm. Probably just the fact that you live in the area and I know a bit about the people that are there, whether they're high income or low income or whatnot. If you then come into my store, well, I can see where you're going and I can see that you're interested in going to this aisle versus that aisle, but you haven't bought anything yet. And then when you buy, I know you as a customer and I can have that information and I can you know tailor that to, uh, to do it differently. So we, you know, we kind of coach our clients on trying to think about data that way. In terms of it's there's a there's a brick and mortar analogy that makes a lot of sense, and especially if the bakery at the corner was selling information to the pharmacy, you'd be like, "What's going on? <laughs> What's going on?" There? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't want that happening. I was just going to say, I think that that um, highlights a distinction between two things that are often conflated when we talk about personalization, right? And that's personalization and, and relevance. Mm. And so, like you know, having something that is relevant to a consumer going to your point about the difference between consumers and customers, something that's relevant to a consumer, there's only a certain level of personalization that you really need to achieve there. You know, if you're trying to sell car insurance to someone who doesn't own a car, then okay, that's probably a level too low. But if you show someone an advert that has their name in it and you've never had any like any sort of relationship with that consumer, they're going to find that quite creepy. Go back to the brick and mortar store. If you're walking past a shop and they call you out, call call out your name, and you've never met them before, again, probably probably not the best experience. So I think <laughs> that relevance versus personalization is something that's sometimes overlooked. I don't know. You know, if somebody, if I was walking past the shop and somebody called out my name, I would assume that I knew them and had just forgotten. How much of this uh, potential reticence among consumers do we think is predicated on? previous experiences with digital advertising not being relevant. So obviously, George used the word creepy there. That was, I think, the most commonly used word for when an ad, say, follows you around the internet. Do you think that consumers who aren't, who, who are sort of not within the industry, assume that that's what we mean by personalization? Not to just um, hammer on Apple again, but in terms of the communication coming from the industry as well, is that if you think back to around the time when iOS 14 was released, there was like a TV campaign, which I think ran last summer as well. But it was someone for example walking through an auction 
So this individual, then this person's information was being auctioned to this room of sinister looking advertisers, but then it was portrayed in a way that uh, I'll buy this person's um, finance history. I want to see what this individual bought yesterday, but what that ad and the confusion in that communication is it didn't get across that this type of data isn't traded freely between advertisers. It's aggregated and anonymized data that we can't see the individual, but I think there is that perception that consumers hang on. Why? Of course you don't want large copies to know the individual, but happy to be served as irrelevant to me based on me being in this cohort of, similar users as well. Absolutely. One of the things that I know our editor, Sam, wants uh, me to ask you is, how then should we as an industry be engaging with uh, conversations around privacy, whether that be with the consumer, whether that be with the governments who are kind of bringing this legislation in? How do we think that we as as an industry should be either leading or just engaging with this discussion? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, again, going back to the, the idea of like, personalization, relevance, and really how deep do you need to actually know someone to have to, to offer a relevant experience to them? Uh, what we've found is that, you know, we've built our analytical solutions around no PII. Uh, so we do not accept user level data into our analytics. Uh, what we do is we, uh, we lightly roll things up to a geographic level. So a local geo level, a zip code or a postal code. Mm. Uh, The reason being is that people that live in a postal code tend to be similar. People that live across postal codes tend to be disparate. Uh, So you can actually, once you layer in um, summarized attitudinal information, you can actually get a lot of insight about who those consumers are um, based on where they live or based on where they're interacting with your brand from. Uh, and we've felt that that's that that's a really good balance of you can go very deep that way and not really have to broach the kind of the, the privacy layer of things uh, and build a build an experience with consumers that really resonates with them and is, and is relevant um, in a way that isn't too creepy. <laughs> it's always this word creepy. I think there was genuinely a study that said that, you know, yeah, this is yeah, word and, cloud. Yeah. And, I, and I think like you were talking about earlier um, about what consumers are aware of, they're they're aware of bad personalization. Like that's yeah. that's what they see. They see they see when it's really bad and it's some really carpet bombing retargeting and that looks awful. Um, but good personalization looks like a really good brand experience that they yeah, don't yeah, really absolutely. recognize as that. It's just a great experience. I want to sort of bring the discussion gently to an end with a couple of questions about what is possible when you do personalization right. So, George, from your perspective, what what do we talk about with when we're talking about doing personalization in an effective way that actually adds value to the consumer or customer? Personalization ultimately is demonstrating an understanding of what is going to be most useful to that consumer at a given point. Um, So I think that um, there was a piece of research done a while ago that um, showed that I think 66% of users or 73% in 2022 expect companies to understand their their unique needs and experiences. And 62% of them expect companies to anticipate their needs. So it's not just about understanding what that user is going to want now, but it's about understanding um, how to build up um, a picture of what that user is likely to want in the future. Um, and I don't think that that needs to be um, you know, massively overcomplicated. I think that you can take some relatively simple steps to, to implement things like that. Um, I think there's a tendency to try and run before we can walk in a lot of these cases. Um, going back to a point I think was raised earlier, 
there's an idea that all companies out there are serving personalized experiences and you know we're we're really talking about incremental gains here we're really not there's a there's a lot of stuff that people can do at the moment um to just increase the relevance of the experience they're serving a user um and then build from there just to build on that on that point, I think whenever we talk about sort of personalization and using customer data, we talk a lot about um, quality, uh, quantitative data, but there is a whole, you know, other area around sort of qualitative data and building understanding of your audience uh, or, or your sort of target customers um, from, you know, that perspective. Uh, qualitative data um, or qualitative research uh, provides a wealth of data that can be used for contextual targeting and i think you know this is this is really becoming increasingly more important always but actually is a circle back to to old school using that uh, you know contextual or geographical signals um you know that relate to those uh, groups of consumers we want to engage with uh, to you know to uh, place an ad in a in a right place um place an ad in a creative that matches what the user may be um, interested interested in um and uh, be active in publications that the users may be um, interested in etc see see i saw russell you nodded uh, at one point there when Anita was talking it was about that kind of creative side making th- making sure things are contextually relevant that presumably yeah. is something you've seen the industry moved yeah, towards ab- absolutely and then something that's tied to personalization is of course uh, testing and being able to test into new creatives and i think that's something that you know we we, we can't ever lose sight of and, and think that you automatically know exactly what needs to be delivered to every consumer out there you can test different creative assets uh, and see which ones perform best and worst um, and being able to do that with obviously the technology that we all have in our hands to do that quickly and be able to learn and be able to shift budgets around uh, towards specific audiences with with creatives that resonate with them. Um, And as it relates to the brand, especially as you get into like a lot of the maybe CPG consumable space of, you know, things that things that we eat, you can use them for multiple purposes. So consumers really being able to understand your brand and how to use your brand um, can really help them, you know, Actually, oh, I didn't know you could use uh, ice cream for, you know, to actually make muffins. You melt the ice cream <laughs> and use it to make, so make muffins out of it. Uh, so there's a lot of really interesting things like that that you can do with creatives and help expose consumers to it. The, the ice cream muffin uh, crossover was not on my bingo card for this episode. That really happened. Yeah. That really happened. <laughs> so, Mark, then when we're talking about personalization as we are now and sort of where the industry is now, are we making the most of the tools to which we have access? Are we, you know, delivering on uh, personalization in a way that actually does maximize the value to consumer and brand alike? I think there has been somewhat of a slow adoption to the tools that we need to do this as best we can, especially in this modern world of steadily depreciating cookies. So we're seeing, especially as we work with clients from a, a new business perspective, how the role has changed, like, that's the kind of the beauty of paid media is that your role almost changes every six months. But now we tend to do a lot more measurement focused activity even before we begin auditing mm-hmm. to campaign accounts to start to put together strategies. So the first thing we're looking at is are you set up in a way that's future proofing how you're measuring your activity? So do you have enhanced conversion set up or um, do you have conversions API if you're using Meta, for example? There's all these different tools that we're using to give us more observable conversions and then we can use these conversions to fuel automation and then this automation is essentially us driving the uh the personalization but um 
I think it's just like you know, the year of mobile, whenever that was, what, six, seven years ago, it, it feels like it's a slow uptake, yeah. but it will become a time when it's, okay, brands need to, to get moving. But I think, yeah, getting there, I think especially in, in the last few months, we're seeing a bit of a more of an uptake, I think. I was going to say, and there's, and there's so many layers of tools that brands can have access to and often do have access to and really might not be doing enough with because they haven't really been able to focus on their strategy and how they use this tool, that tool, the other tool, and actually use them holistically to, to drive the brand forward. Uh, it just requires a lot of knowledge uh, in many, many cases, and it just quite it isn't quite there yet. I think also to to add add to that is um, I think in general the adoption of you know using first party data so the data that we collect from you know our existing customers is obviously the most valuable data that that we have because it comes from people who already engage with our business um, or purchase from us so adoption of you know using uh, that first party data and feeding it back to app platforms I feel like has not yet been adopted at the level that I think it should be. There are huge benefits of feeding this back into app platforms in form of, for example, customer match uh, to re-engage with people who already, you know, shared some data with you or reaching new people with similar characteristics to existing customers by creating lookalikes, for example. So, um, yeah, again, this is definitely something that I don't think that brands are, are doing in, enough of. And uh, you, your CRM will hold, you know, a wealth of information that, that can be activant, activated across those media platforms. Um, and you don't necessarily need, you know, expensive enterprise level um, solutions, feeding that data into your Google Analytics in the form mm. of certain audience segments and then further Further down to your, um, you know, ad platforms like Google Ads or, or DV360, will have, you know, will be a huge step in introducing more personalization and, and you know, con- connecting with your um, customers and potential customers in a much more meaningful way. I don't think we are making the most of the tools we have access to. Um, I think the temptation always seems to be for brands to go out and buy the latest shiny piece of tech, um, when in reality there are probably things about the way that their business as an organization is structured that would prevent them getting the most out of that. So one example would be um, I've seen so many advertisers struggle to produce the volume and variety of creatives required even for relatively basic forms of personalization in their paid media campaigns. Um, that might be because they don't have enough creative resource in-house or they haven't um, you know, outsourced that effectively enough. Um, or you know, from think about like CRO, which I think is still like massively underutilized discipline, mm. given the level of impact that it can have on potentially all of your marketing channels. Um, and I think one of the main reasons for that is that in many businesses, there's, there's to the separation of the web development and marketing teams or a lack of developer resource in general. So, yeah, as I said before, I think there's a, often a tendency to try and run before we can walk. And, and actually, it might be more realistic to aim for relevance first instead of personalization as a first step and then to try and build from there. Amazing. Well, thank you all for taking the time to go and have this chat. We Again, we could have spoken about that for hours. So I'm, I'm glad that we managed to keep it relatively to time. Thank you so much to Russell, Mark, Anita and George. Um, if the listeners want to reach out and get in contact about any of the work that you've already done, or even just to bend your ear about some of these questions, where's the best place for them to find you, Russell? Yeah, for me, it's two places. One is through LinkedIn. Obviously, I'm, of course, I'm out there and posting uh, and then through gaintheory.com. Uh, I'm accessible through the through the company website. Very nice. And Mark? Yeah. For me too, it would be LinkedIn or uh, Brave Boys and our company website as well. 
Amazing. And Anita? At LinkedIn, absolutely. But obviously, if you want to learn more about Search Laboratory as a whole, um, searchlaboratory.com is the, is the um, place to go. Nice. And George? Yeah, and it's the same for me. So LinkedIn um, or impression.co.uk, or you can drop us an email at hello at impression.co.uk. Perfect. One of these days, I'm going to get somebody to uh, to promote their Twitch channel, but not today. So thank you again, Russell, Mark, Anita, and George. It's been a fantastic chat. And thank you all to the listeners as well. Please do stick around. Go to thedrum.com where we write about privacy, personalization, and all aspects of digital marketing every single day of the week. But for now, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>